Hello and welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel and today I am joined on the show by Mirandi Rewo. The Final Draft Podcast explores books, writing and literary culture. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And at Final Draft we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to the classics that you know and love. Each of these conversations is a way to look into the issues that drive the author's storytelling to help you discover more from the books you love because these are the stories that make us who we are. 2SEL broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands and the treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. I, uh, I am joined on the show today by Mirandi Rewo. Mirandi is an incredible author of historical fiction, detective fiction. You have met her on the show before uh, when we had a chat about her, one of her most recent novels, Stone Sky Gold Mountain. And today she is back with another uh, piece of historical fiction exploring uh, the war period in Indonesia and colonisation of Indonesia from the Dutch. It is called Sunbirds. It is incredible. There is a love story, an action story. It is thoughtful and contemplative, but it's also pacey and uh, demands that you keep turning pages. I love chatting with Mirandi, so I'm very excited. Join me as we discover Mirandi Rewo's Sunbirds. Andrew, can you hear me? I can hear you just great, Mirandi. How are you? It's miraculous when that works. <laughs> <laughs> still? After I mean, all these years, I'm still like, is it working? <laughs> it, is, it is so wonderful to be talking with you again. Yeah, thank you. It's lovely talking to you. I was telling somebody the other day how I think the first one was must have been on the phone. The first one must have been on the phone uh, for Heloise, my crime novel. She'd be damned, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, and I was telling a friend just the other day how you went to so much, so much effort, like you put all those sound effects on and everything, and <laughs> I was so cool. <laughs> oh yes, that was that. And look, do you know what that was—the probably- creaking door and the music. Oh my god! <laughs> and Sunbirds is just tremendous. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll <laughs> thank confess. You. I mean, I. I don't, I don't know because, you know, I know a pr- the process of a book can be years in the making. So I don't know mm. when that process ended for you and you're sort of living in the afterglow now. But I was really struck by glow. The, the, uh, <laughs> the afterglum. Is it, is it not? Oh, <laughs> not being, not being fated for your, I've seen you. Oh, pop, no, no. It's I've, been, it's been on, wonderful. On I've had a wonderful show. run. Yeah. It's always fun. But, um. The way it lands, like I, I, I couldn't help but be reading it and resonate with, especially because I've been reading it mostly over the last month and, you know, probably more mm. over the last couple of weeks. I, I couldn't help but have, and oh my goodness, one of my very first notes is Czech pronunciations expl- excl- uh, exclamation mark. And if I can't even pronounce exclamation mark, I'm going <laughs> to destroy some of these names. I am pronouncing his name Sigit in my head, but you tell me. Oh, it's with a hard G, so it's Sigit. Sigit. Okay, yeah. I could not help but just be really focusing in on Sigurd's story and his, um, I Amazing. guess, his, um, how would we say it, like his, his agitating for revolution and for independence mm. and, you know, reading this in the aftermath of um, the referendum and just, I'm just going to describe mm. it as a tragedy. But then also even even what we're seeing playing out in the Middle East between mm. Israel and Gaza and I'm thinking... You know, we we act like we act like these things have happened in isolation; that they're just mm. popping up out of nowhere, and that there's not this bloody history. 
Mm. That's what I love about um, historical fiction, actually, is I think, I think good historical fiction is actually saying something about today, today's world, um, which I I try to, I guess one of the themes I work with a lot would be racism, but also to do with um you know, feminist issues as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, going back to Sigit, I guess for him, um, you know, like he's a he's a character that was educated by the Dutch, um, but then in that education it's like Sakano and Hatter and, you know, the fellows who um, then ruled Indonesia, um, they got their education, you know, in Holland, part of their education in Holland and um, sort of that's where they learned a lot of these ideas about politics. Um and yes, looking at the world now, I know when I was writing this novel, it was during the pandemic, and I think um, I think hap- things happened over the last few years that really fed into how I had my characters react to the time when the Japanese were invading. In that, um, you remember in COVID, like we didn't know what the rules were going to be, we didn't know where we could go if you get home again, you know what what you could do Mm. um, and everything was changing so quickly and that really let me sort of tap into the uncertainty of you know with the with the Japanese sort of invading um, not knowing how far they were going to come if they were going to make it because a part of you in your mind also thinks it's not going to happen like you see all these things on the news that you don't really think it's going to happen to you and I remember that was happening with COVID we didn't really you know we you know remember those pictures of all the chairs in the hospitals um you know all the seats you know waiting for really ill people like what was happening in New York and Italy you know and then that never really happened here until much later um and also of course what happened um while I was writing this as well was the uh well which led me to sort of think about these things as well was the Ukraine, what was Mm. happening in Ukraine, that idea of like, you know, having to leave your home and what would you take? What do you have to leave? What does that feel like? It was all just a bit, you know, um, sort of there in our faces. So, yeah. So when I um, I write historical fiction, I think actually it should be sort of reflecting on something now as well. And definitely colonisation is, is. Not going anywhere. No, you know, it's still, yeah, alive and, yeah. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. Here we go. Okay, 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 (laughs) okay. It is my incredible pleasure to be welcoming back to the show today, Mirandi Rio. Mirandi, uh, you've met her on the show before. Her novel Stone Sky Gold Mountain won the 2020 Queensland Literary Award for fiction. Today, Mirandi's joining us with her new novel. It's called Sunbirds. I'm excited, Mirandi. It's so great to have you back. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. It's lovely being back. I We've had many chats over the years and yes. I've always loved them. We've just had a, a, an off-air chat that threatened to, you know, dive <laughs> into our on-air Recorded, yes. Let's go. Let's go straight to Sunbirds, where in the shadow of war, a wealthy Dutch family celebrates on their tea plantation. The war has not yet touched their wealth and status, but on this fateful night, the players will be assembled who represent the future of their colonial endeavour. As Anna enjoys her father's position of privilege, she must also duck her mother's remonstrations that she not behave like a local girl. Her history, one foot in Java and the other in Holland, tears her between past and future and all the people around her. How did I do, Mirandi? I, I tried to summarise a little bit. That is a bit. great summary. I was, I was actually thinking, I'm going to go back and write this one down just so it's easier for me to I describe. I wrote it down. I can just send it to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's perfect. 
It's incredible. Like the the novel is quite expansive um, and harkens well into the future, but also I was really fascinated by the opening scene. The you open the book; it's a, a Sinterklaas party. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes, thrown on the Van Horns tea plantation. And in this, you you really introduce each of the key players to the narrative. You show us how precarious life would have been in Java on the cusp of 1942. I was hoping, though, just for the listener, could you set the scene a little? Talk about the twinned forces of war and the rumblings of independence that were shaping this region at the time. Well, that's exactly what I was trying to show, actually, in this book, were all the different uh, ways the different people looked at Indonesia at the time, which of course was the Dutch East Indies. So we had the Dutch who, you know, loved their time there. They, they, you know, I, part of my research was from memoirs of that period from um, Eurasian or Dutch women, usually who'd written about, you know, like um, the Dutch East Indies before World War II, before the Japanese invaded. And they they really loved their time there. Like they they mourned. Actually, a woman, I met a woman the other day who said she worked with a woman in the 50s who came from the Dutch East Indies when they were all thrown out. And she she was depressed that she'd had to leave there so much because a lot of these people, a lot of these Dutch people were actually born there mm. and loved Indonesia. But then we've got um we've got Anna, who's her father is um the tea plantation owner. He's Dutch, but her mother, Hermine, is Eurasian, and Eurasians in Indonesia were called Indos. So you're either like Indonesian Dutch or Indonesian Chinese Dutch, you know, so whatever mixture, like a Eurasian. Um, so she, so Anna herself is Indo as well. So by then, of course, she's three quarters white, I guess, because Hermine is um, half Dutch herself. Um, so I wanted to look at, you know, this character who had like you said, lived in both worlds. But also she's she's brought up as very Dutch and with a rich father, um, a good family, and what these sort of Dutch women or young women would do usually would be go, they would go to Europe. They would go to Europe, maybe some sort of finishing school, they'd travel around, hopefully marry well. But, of course, Europe's in World War II. Holland has been taken over by Germany. A lot of Dutch are stuck in the Dutch East Indies and the Japanese are just about to invade. But they're not sure, like, you know, if they're going to get as far as Java, maybe the Dutch will hold them off. Um, They get to Malaysia, Singapore. Anyway, then we've got Dia, who is the servant. So she's native Indonesian. Um, and she has a lot of loyalty to the family. She's been with the family since she was small to, to care for Anna. Um, she's only a few, you know, like several years older than Anna, but she was a child herself. So she's she's grown up in this family. They've been very good to her. And also they were very good to her brother, who they've helped educate. And he's spent some time in Holland, Sigit. But Sigit's come home as a nationalist. He's come home. He wants, um, like many Indonesians, wants the country back and um, from the Dutch. And quite a few, I didn't realise this before my research, but quite a, a few Indonesians welcomed the Japanese invasion because the Japanese had promised that they would, um, you know, um, would free them from the Dutch. So what I was trying to do with this book, because it's on the cusp of the Japanese invading, I just wanted to show all these different ways that all these people looked at at Indonesia itself or Java, especially in that time. That was so beautiful. And thank you so much for so (laughs) wonderfully encompassing 
each of the players as they're sort of assembling on the board, so to speak, of this this party at the very beginning of the book. Before we go deeper there, I because that mm. was what that was what compelled me most about the novel, the way you draw out so many characters and you do it in such fine detail. Like I I, I read a lot of books. I cannot emphasize how extraordinary that is in in 300 odd pages to do that for so many characters one or two yeah but so many <laughs> before we though we before we get caught up in those questions about this ensemble cast i wanted to also pay my respects to the way you set the scene um both i guess uh politically but also visually and geographically throughout the book there are all these moments of reflection about the ever-shifting landscape um that, that has had invasion, settlement, progress. Mm. It's, it's all shaped the countryside. Mm. How was it for you drawing out this particular moment in time and this landscape, this, this vast expanse that shifts so quickly? Um, I guess there, there's probably two answers to that. Um, when I was first researching this novel, I came across a book that was about um, Dutch memory, really. It was about, so I read a lot on memory, sort of in that sort of colonised space, mm. um, colonisation sort of space. But, um, and this book was about, and I think it's very true of Australia too, it's about like we we actually have evidence of these sort of atrocities or, or um, that happened in the, the day or, you know, like a couple of hundred years ago, 300 years ago, but we don't look at them as a as a sort of society now because it's not how we want to think of ourselves so we don't sort of sort of go back into these things um like the photos and the history of it and and i think that's actually somewhere where fiction can sort of step in and maybe um bring to light again you know what might have happened in the past what might sort of be happening now that's very you know, much the same as what was happening in the past and and that it is part of our legacy. Uh, the second part would also, I guess, so then there are photos, like I said, you know, then there are photos of these massacres or there's photos of what the land was like before. And then you're thinking, so with this tea plantation um, or a lot of the plantations in Indonesia or Java at that time were, you know, for the Dutch to sort of import, export, whereas before that, uh, the Indonesians would have used it themselves for their own local farming or, you know, for, for rice or whatever they needed to use it for. And I guess the second thing would be then you'd look at Australia's history um, and the First Nations history and how things have changed here. You know, so I, I just think it's um, it's something that's relevant um, to now to sort of consider how changes of, uh, you know, places, sorry, have changed for people and why and what's the history of that and the importance of looking at the history of that and knowing how we've come to now mm. in this country or Indonesia yeah. Yeah, or any colonised space, yeah. And, I mean, these these colonial tensions, they continue to play out across the world, um, whether we acknowledge them or not. I mean, so mm. often when we see discussions of this, the the colonial element gets obscured. You know, people don't want to talk about that. They no. Often it suits their narrative to pretend that the um, the tension emerged only recently. Mm. But as these tensions, um, as we recognise... Or that it was done in some sort of just 
way or, you know, like this benevolent way or, mm. or for the better, you know, and, and this sort of denial of, of what actually went down and yeah. Yeah. You know. But how we, how we approach that, I guess, how we approach that from the perspective of where we sit now or perhaps in the, in the parlance of the novel where they were in 1941, 1942. And I wondered about the, the role that Anna plays. Did she, did you want her to represent this tension in her reckoning with her Dutch and her Indonesian heritage? Yes. Yeah, so I guess for Anna, it's, it's an awakening for her, isn't it? Because mm. before that she was very entrenched in her de- Dutch kind of life, you know, mm. but that's been taken away from her. She's become engaged with Matthias, who is who is Dutch, but but there's so much uncertainty on whether they'll get even back to Holland. You know what's happening there, um, and so what happens is she starts to she, so she's she's kind of s- stuck in Java. All the parties and everything have dried up because all the socialising has dried up because, of course, the the war is becoming closer and the the men have been drafted. Um, And she becomes more ensconced in local life. So, Mm. and she is becoming more, you know, um, interested in the sort of the the native side of her her persona i guess and she so she goes to the village a lot she's getting to know and she gets to know sigit and then through sigit she's 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 learning that maybe she's there are two sides to the story mm. it isn't all you know like i said benevolent like she thinks it is on her from her father's point of view um yeah so i think for her there's an awakening also though on the other hand so she's got her mother who's also like nagging at her to not become like a village Indo. So in Indonesia what happened or at the time what happened, um, if you were Indo, Eurasian, and your father was Dutch and he um, accepted you as his child, then you're as good as Dutch, right? But if your father, if you were born sort of illegitimately or your father didn't recognise you as your child, as his child, then you were something like a village Indo, which was, which was really not great you were sort of bottom of the social rung then you know and um inflicted with you know poverty and all that sort of thing so she her mother's always reminding her to that she has to act well like a a dutch lady or else she'll be mistaken for this village indo Mm -hmm. um and so what she's doing so what anna's doing is she's watching this court case play out Mm in Batavia, which is Jakarta. No, no, the original case, sorry. It's based on a real case that happened in Batavia. It's happening in the in the novel, it's happening in Bandung, which is a town nearby. So it's it's also an Indo girl, a Eurasian girl who was a village Indo, had become a sex worker and she's been ma- murdered by a Dutch man. Mm. So this is all like based on a true case in the 1920s. So Fincher was her name. Anyway, so Anna is watching this case unfold and she's looking at how the courts and the newspapers are representing this Indo girl and she's seeing some reflections of herself in this girl and I guess through knowing Sigit and her own ideas she's starting to see how unfair the the world is you know depending on like whether you're you know like your father accepts you or not etc yeah you're describing what you're describing is just this incredibly complex, I guess, <laughs> stacking of caste and class and socioeconomics, which is re- it, it all hinges on people having the power and being able to maintain the power because 
so much of, as we see through, I guess, the twinning of Anna and Fincher's stories mm-hmm. as, as, we, as they come to emerge, what we see is a very, uh, I guess, flimsy separation that they are, in fact, Absolutely. who they are because of who people told them they were. Exactly, which um, is very much a reflection of um, the society then mm-hmm. and there, especially to do with, you know, like the Dutch obviously were at the top. Um, then, you know, somewhere down there you would have the Chinese who are well off and um, I guess doing business with the Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then you probably, uh, you know, maybe on the same level would have been Indos, so the, the Eurasian, the 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 recognised Eurasians, um, and then you've got like maybe the the village Indos and the actual native Indonesians at the bottom, and then women, of course, in, native women at the very bottom, and the probably and all these all these different um, classes sort of played out in really weird ways. Like even the Indos, it was in their it was in their um, you know, it was good for them if they kept native Indonesians down because then, because they were already scrambling for work, say, in the mm. government against actual full, full blood Dutch people. Mm. So these Indos are already scrambling for that sort of um, work in, uh, you know, the government work. So it was in their best interests to keep actual native Indonesians down, you know, so the native Indonesians didn't get, you know, the educated ones, the ones who did manage to get an education didn't get their work. So there were all these sort of competing um, classes, yes, in society mm. for, for very complicated reasons. Yeah. And I guess it's fertile, it's fertile ground for an incredible narrative that plays out through all of these characters. I was really, um, we've touched on a few of these and I, I, I just wanted to draw out the way Anna is, she's torn between mm. Matthias, a handsome mm. Dutch pilot, and Sigit, mm. uh, a handsome local intellectual and revolutionary, <laughs> which is, you know, tough work having two hot tough suitors. Tough world. Mm. <laughs> I wondered, I wondered though, how does how does the language and shape of a romance help mm. you speak into this larger political story? Um, I guess it's all. I guess everything's about choices. So I knew as soon as I heard about, so through my cousin, I met a friend of hers whose father was a baby and had been rushed out of um, Jakarta, like out of Indonesia, like the beginning, you know, in the prologue of the novel, Mm. somebody's rushing out on a plane to Broome. They're being evacuated. Anyway, so this this fellow, his father was a baby when they were evacuated because his father was a KLM pilot and they were absorbed into the Allies. The pilots were absorbed into Allies when the Japanese were on the, the, everyone's doorstep. So, um, so they were allowed to take their closest family to be evacuated to Broome, okay, and they were apparently given something like half an hour notice so immediately when i heard that story i guess for me immediately i thought well then there's this dutch pilot and he's got a tricky choice to make about who who does he take out of the country you know so i guess um i guess talking sort of romance or how i've structured this novel it would come down to choices i know 
Um, my mum always, always says that an interest, what she loves in a book is, um, is when the character has to make a moral choice. Mm. Like that's, you know, for her a really interesting crux of a, of a sort of novel. So, um, yeah, so I sort of wanted to play into this idea of choices really. I, mm. And I think, I think in wartime or at any time, um, you know, like extreme times like the pandemic, choices just become so much more fraught, don't they? You, mm. you know, because you don't want to make the wrong choice, you know, and, you know, that's probably true in romance as well. <laughs> I love Like even, you said, yeah. two dishy fellows. Who are you <laughs> going to choose? <laughs> as, and as, I, love, I love the way that, that plays out, and perhaps we'll come back to that in a sec, but I also love this idea of choice because so often – uh, so often in romance, we're presented with this idea of fate and inevitability mm. and being swept mm. away. But of course, Anna manages to get swept away a couple of times in ways that are mm. intrinsically uh, tied into her seeking identity and seeking answers about this world she lives in. And so, yeah, she has to make a choice. Like it's it's very uh, it's very much a part of her story that she has to makes them even if she is helped along by I guess the behavior of of both Matthias and, and Sigurd. <laughs> yes well that's life too isn't it but yeah that's a really great way of putting Anna actually is that whole having to decide for herself you know being Eurasian being Indo also deciding which life and she's very imaginative I, I made her very imaginative because I wanted her to be able to imagine her, her life in numerous different ways, you know, and how that would play out and that constant kind of anxiety of getting it right, you know, mm. yeah. I was struck by um, perhaps I call it an, an overwhelming weight that I felt through the novel, like a sense of the impending doom in the war, um, mm. need for revolution and independence, the possibility of overcoming social, political and gendered attitudes, this it's not a it's not a heavy novel, but I, I feel mm. this on the back of each of the characters, and then and then you created something about two thirds of the way through the novel. You created mm. something of a break, an armistice, if you will, in the pressures of everyday life. As like Matthias is confined, he he has contracted malaria, and in this period, the characters kind of they come to indulge in imagining a different kind of life. I wondered. If I'm reading this correctly, what what did you want this reprieve to give your characters? Um, well, of course, it would have been time, huh? It's time to develop new relationships mm. and new ideas, and maybe new new um, like selves. Mm. You know, in in the meeting of these these different people. Um, so, and I think in those sort of, I think. Um, one-on-one, even in a short period, you can really get to know somebody and yourself. Um, so I think, like you said, it is, they do have this reprieve and we know it's within a quite a short time span between the, you know, the beginning of the novel and when, when, you know, they really do have to consider that, you know, that the Japanese are on, uh, you know, in Java. Um, so I did want to, I guess that was that was a reprieve for them to develop, um, develop uh, a new relationship, new relationship with themselves and how they see themselves. And I think actually a lot of 
what happens in this novel for, say, Matthias and Anna especially wouldn't have happened if the Japanese weren't about to invade. Like mm. if, if life was just going on as normal, then they would have just got married. They would have, you know, had, you know, a lovely life either on the tea plantation being, you know, well-off sort of um, Dutch in Indonesia or, or gone back to Holland and had a lovely life there, which Anna wanted, you know. So um, their lives would have been very different. And, yeah, so I guess um, the Japanese being so close has forced them into looking at other parts of, of their own souls, their own mm. selves as well. And, of course, it is tremendous to, to think about how we respond under pressure and how we respond in moments where it seems like we're actually taken out of our world. Because, as, as you said, that Anna and Matthias's life may have looked different. But, of course, if there wasn't this pressure of impending invasion mm. and war, mm. perhaps Anna and Matthias would not have even ended up engaged because Anna would have been travelling to Oh, absolutely. There is that so, too, yes. Of course, within, yes. you know, within this incredibly, um, you know, uh, strange situation, all possibilities are are both on the table and, and swept off the moment they're laid down. That's, that's so true. And Matthias probably would have, you know, worked for a, a, a bigger airline, that sort of thing, because he's working for the smaller airline at the time. So because he's obviously quite... Um, you know, I wanted him to be a bit of a go-getter. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, yes, that's interesting. Historical fiction has, I think I think with different people, um, uh, different authors as I've spoken, has a sense of inevitability but also incredible freedom within, I guess, what we know will will be true, what we know will come to happen. And, and Sigit's politics, they speak to the near future that will play out across the country mm. in the post-war period. Mm. And I wondered, as you wrote, how mm. did you reflect on this, especially now when the scars of colonialism are still sore across the world? Mm. Um, I guess I haven't, I haven't thought about this a lot. I guess for me, because we do know they did get independence, but what's interesting is that it was for, you know, for several years or a few years they had to fight again for that independence in Indonesia, you know, like the Dutch did come back and did um, try to take it back again, even as other countries were, you know, letting their colonies go. So that was that was interesting. And I guess at heart I'm just really pleased for them that it, it worked out, that actually um, it did make that break and that they did um, fight and that they do have their own country back. So I know Sigit actually, you know, did get the life that he wanted on that sort of bigger political scale. Mm. Yes. I flagged how... Um I flagged how much I, I loved each of the characters I, and the wonderful way that you draw them all out. And I'm, I'm conscious that perhaps, um, you know, with a couple of days and or, you know, some sort of expansive book club, we might talk about each character in detail. But okay. I, I wanted to really, as, as, I, as I read through the novel, I realised that there was something that was kept on drawing me out. And so I wanted to leave, I guess, the final word in our conversation to Dia. Throughout the novel, she, mm. she works for the Van Horns whilst also dreaming mm. of a different life. Mm. She's not exactly the revolutionary that we see in her brother 
Sigit, and that mm. is related to, I guess, her circumstances as as a woman. She is not given the privilege of, uh, you know, sort of a, a paid study trip abroad. That's that's a trite way to characterise <laughs> it. Um, she does, though, have she has her own way of imagining herself out of her situation. She's able to do it independently. I'm not going to say more. I'm I'm teetering mm. on on spoilers, but like, what would you like to say about Dia? Because for me, she emerged as the central character, if not the. Um, She's a very strong character. She's the steady character, isn't she? Whereas Anna's sort of flopping all over the place trying to work out who she is. Dia does know who she is. I mean, all I, I, would, all I would say for people who haven't read the novel is you, you will come to the end of the novel or I came to the end of the novel and I suddenly thought, have I been reading this wrong? Like, have I been reading the wrong protagonist? Was it Dia all mm. along? Mm, interesting. Um Yes, no, Dear in hindsight, Dear is is the strongest character in that she definitely knows what she wants and what she stands for. Um and maybe not on a biggest, you know, this sort of big sort of political national scale like Sigit, but but just in her own world, she she is definitely searching for her own independence. Um but that's interesting what you were saying too about these these female characters in there. Like I was mm-hmm. um I often, you know, I was saying that historical fiction I think is is important if it can sort of reflect on now as well. And I like to look at these sort of feminist issues or, you know, racist issues that are around, but definitely with say Dia and her position in the household or in life, um, culturally, socially, you know, um, and her mean Anna's mum, who's Eurasian from a certain time and space in the world. um, You're looking at, how these women, I think this is something um, that you can really look at in these sort of women, is how these women are able to subvert the limitations that are put upon them mm. by, you know, a, a very patriarchal world, mm. you know, and and I think that's still relevant today. In the telling of history, we are so often privy only to the stories of nominally the victors who are almost exclusively mm. male and it strikes me that historical fiction has that that power to tell into spaces that were not told are perhaps mm. not recorded and it's really it, it again it is really interesting that um a, a character like Sigit has the potential to be celebrated as a as a great leader, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But in the aftermath, except in, you know, perhaps Orwell's world of uh, perennial war, it's actually f- to the people who will just create the world after, who will live their lives, who will um, start the businesses and, and, mm. have the, and, and do all of these things. And that was, oh, we're really flying close to the sun in terms of spoilers here. But, but again, <laughs> it's just like, dear... Dia was was always a through line. As I got to the end of the novel, I realized she was always a through line, and that was that was really fascinating. I love a book that that gets to the end and makes me rethink everything I've just read. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad that worked then. <laughs> 
I have I have maybe like one or two structural questions that are, yes. are going to gonna actually yes. like jump into spoiler territory. So what I'm going to do, Mirandi, and this mm. is this will be mm. for the podcast people who um, mm. who have stayed with us. I'm going to uh, say I am speaking with Mirandi Rewa. We are discussing her new novel, Sunbirds. It has been an absolutely fabulous conversation, and I thank you so much. Thank you, Angie. Such great questions and lots of your um, comments have informed me on how I would talk about this book too. <laughs> and for all the podcast listeners who have stayed along, this is now, we're in spoiler territory and it's it's kind okay. of strange in historical fiction to talk about spoilers because, of course, we know what happened in the war. We can read about mm. Indonesian mm. independence. Mm. But structurally, one thing that I really wanted to ask you about was you confine the body of the narrative to a very short period of months in to the end mm-hmm. of 1941 to nine, uh, mm. 1942. And then you jump us into the future. Mm. And many narratives do this. Um, you know, sometimes even on TV we get to see weirdly what aged. Yeah. yeah, weirdly aged characters or just little anecdotes <laughs> of what does that what does that offer you as an author? Because of course you mm. you tease stories that could occupy multiple novels. Um, what did it offer you? You as know, a, that's as interesting. An when I was writing this novel, I did get to perhaps let me have a look. The last line before that little the little is it called an epilogue the the last bit you can call it whatever you want it's your book but yes so i did get to the last very last line of the actual uh book before the epilogue before i jumped to the the 90s the 1990s um and i thought gosh you know what i'm just going to leave it there i'm just going to leave it there i'm not going to explain like what happened i'm just going to leave it there and people can work it out for themselves but then and then i thought oh no well no i'll experiment with a bit of a bit of you know like what i'll see if it's too i don't like i don't like endings that are too like tied up in a bow but i feel like maybe it's still not tied up in a bow mm. we, we could still but it gives satisfying answers because I guess as a reader as well, I like, I like, I personally like a satisfying ending. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't love an ending that just, you know, you've got to do all the work as the reader. Um, One ending that I really love is, but it's kind of frustrating. So I really remember it as an ending is um, Captain Corelli's mandolin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it gets the ending. And I don't think the movie does it justice because in the book, here's a spoiler, in the book um, he comes back many years later. No, he comes back almost immediately, apparently, and he sees her with a child and thinks, oh, well, she's moved on. So he goes away. But then he comes back as an old man and he explains it because she did apparently wait for him this whole time and she throws pots and pans at him because she's so enraged that she's waited this 50 years or whatever and um and he'd left on this sort of mamma mia misunderstanding anyway and it's always stayed with me that that and it's like mamma mia too that sort of all those wasted years you know like those in between you know with Meryl Streep and um so not that that's how my book ends so your listeners don't think (laughs) that's how my (laughs) mine ends but i do i do i do love an ending i do love an ending that might ex you know explain what happens with the characters to a degree to a degree it strikes me um i was really curious as you were talking there i thought oh so hang on 
okay, if it had ended where you'd suggested it might have ended, mm. how might I have felt? And then I, th- what really brought that out for me is an, an epilogue. Like this is some probably just just clocks in at five pages. There's mm. a certain poetry because you introduce, I think, at least one new, fairly significant character. You hint at multiple <laughs> other characters. And so every word suddenly gets pregnant with the meaning of some 50 years. And mm. like I'm, I'm going to read something that will mean something to you, Mirandi, and, and mm. not to anyone mm-hmm. else. Um, mm. You know, just, just the words like stinky beans. Like there's a poetry to that yes. because, of course. yes. Because we know where we're first introduced to them in the book, hopefully. Yeah, but but also hopefully. then, you know, what 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 does that mean to this character mm. in this in this history? That oh, and actually, out? actually, now that yeah, now that you're, I, I totally forgot, but the epilogue also has a reveal in it. Actually, yes, it does have a big reveal in it. So, yeah, so I think it, I think actually it does serve a purpose. Um, yep, and I. Which, I like big, that which big reveal? Because I feel like there was a there's a reveal, but then there's also a kind of an implied, you know. Oh, maybe I'm talking about the implied we're reveal. In deep, we're in deep spoilers. I mean, like that she ends yeah, up um, she, that she ends up with the with, the high cheekbones, the high cheekbones. Oh. oh yeah, and there's that too. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And they're little things you hope the reader will pick up on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. It's I like wonderful. how you whispered that. I love, yeah. <laughs> Do you know if this were, if, if, if you were, if you were writing for the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC or, or any of the, there would be tens of hundreds of YouTubers writing videos about deep cuts and, and um, Easter eggs. And of course, oh, yeah. yeah, I know when it's novels, yes. it's just, it's just the two of us and we get to talk about it and hope <laughs> that someone else is going to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely tremendous. I'm going to say another big thank you. We kind of we kind of clocked off the interview proper when I I said my goodbye Yuck. before, but uh, now that I'm I'm you know kind of laughing and my radio voice has slipped a little bit, I, I can say with all sincerity, <laughs> thank you again, Mirandi. I love thank you. I love these books and I love chatting. Um, do you know what? Actually, I had another thought, and this was true. Yes. I, I could have listened back. This this was a thought mm. way at the beginning of my reading of Sunbirds. This is going back to when we uh, when we first met, when we first spoke. Mm. It was. Um, I'm going to get. Am I going to get your pen name wrong? M J Tia. 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 Yeah. Uh, yeah. For well when we spoke for she be damned, and we were yes. speaking about. Um, your detective, your 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 Holmes, Heloise, who also is your Asian, <laughs> and but also her uh, her Watson, whose name I have forgotten. But we were talking. Oh, Ama, her her servants, sort of slash. Mm. We find out mother. And we were and we were talking about uh, representation and how these four uh, for detectives. We you know it's not that there is there are no women detectives, but there was an element yeah. of this is something that we are not um, familiar with in that sort of Victorian period. But mm. then also uh, representation for for non-white detectives in that particular space. Mm. Um, like how how has how have those sort of thoughts played out for you as you as you write? Like where did you go from this kind of genre fiction into historical fiction? Did that was there a through line for you, or is this just uh, writing? I guess that you know what 
talking to you makes me realize the through the through line actually probably isn't historical fiction. It's probably being Eurasian mm. that I'm Eurasian. That's probably actually the through line yep. for my fiction. Um, the, Cause the historical fiction I just kind of fell into because I wanted to write about a courtesan. I wanted her to be a courtesan because I wanted to sort of look at those sort of um, ideas to do with sexuality, uh, which I could kind of really sort of um, delve into in the character of a, a Eurasian courtesan in the 18th, 19th century. But um, so the three lines probably actually the Eurasian and how I sort of moved probably from the crime fiction into literary fiction was actually the fish girl in between. Mm. So the fish girl came from that short story by Somerset Maugham that I actually mm. read as research for um, the Heloise novels. You know, mm. I just wanted to see sort of how um, white you know, authors were looking at Southeast Asia in that colonised period. Um, and that's how I came across the Somerset Maugham short story. So I wrote The Fish Girl and, you know, luckily it did quite well and it kind of actually the writing of that kind of thrust me into a sort of more sort of literary historical fiction mm. uh, away from the the crime fiction. Although I'd, I'd, I have more crime ideas so i wouldn't mind going back to the crime fiction but still but even then it still would have this duration through line <laughs> so that must just be me <laughs> that's tremendous and and just like sneak attack at the end of the interview mirandy tells us oh no there could be more crime coming oh yeah yeah i um i would yes i have got an, a sneaky idea andrew for a for a crime novel Tremendous. It's, yeah, I kind of find it exciting. Although I do, I do also think you need to know your strengths as an author, mm. and there are just such great crime writers out there who write just great thrillers, especially contemporary um, fiction. So I, I also do realise it's a very competitive field, and maybe I should stick to what I do. <laughs> thank you so oh, much. Thank again. you so much, and I'll talk to you next time. Talk to you soon. Thank you again to Mirandi for joining me on the show today. Mirandi's new book is Sunbirds and it is out now. I hope you enjoyed that chat. That was a little bit different. Often when I am sitting down and speaking with Australian authors, we have bits of the conversation that extend before and after the chat itself. I included some of those in because Mirandi just had some incredible things to share about her thoughts on historical fiction, her thoughts on the the through line and the threads that pull together all of her writing. And what a great little revelation at the end that there might be a new mystery crime novel coming. If you enjoyed the show, well, Final Draft, it is recorded on the lands of the Durrigan Gunungurra people. It is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. And you can stay in touch. Drop us a line on the socials. Let us know. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can give us a rating, give us a star, write us a comment. I would love to hear what you are enjoying, and it's a great way to share this podcast with other people. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more incredible conversations from Australian authors here on Final Draft. Until then, happy reading. Bye for now.